I do swear that I will, as searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district, faithfully and as privately as I can, discharge the trust reposed in me as the law directs to the best of my power. So help me God. Slave Patroller's Oath, North Carolina, 1828. NCJA 1014. February is recognized as Black History Month. This special episode of NCJA 1014 is dedicated to those African-American law enforcement leaders who have served our state, as well as those like today's guest. Jason Armstrong is chief of police in Apex and brought with him a wealth of career experience and leadership. Thank you again for being with us, Chief. Uh, Yes, sir, Kurt, and uh, thank you for, for having me. So I started my career in Georgia, Forest Park Police Department, which is in Metro Atlanta. Uh, And I spent the first 17 and a half years of my career down there um, and and working at that organization, you know, started as a patrol officer and worked my way up through the ranks and ultimately became the first African-American to hold the position of lieutenant, first African-American to hold the position of captain, first African-American to hold the position of major. And I also served a stint as the interim police chief in that organization. So I had, you know, vast experience in that organization, and that really launched my career. So the success that I had in Forest Park uh, led me to being appointed the police chief in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, most people in law enforcement are familiar with Ferguson, Missouri, from the 2014 officer-involved shooting death of Mike Brown in that town and the unrest that unfolded after that incident. So I went to Ferguson in 2019 to work on the reform efforts there. Then in 2021, the opportunity came open here in Apex and an opportunity for me to come back home to North Carolina, where I grew up. And I was blessed to to be selected for this position and have been back here in Apex serving as the chief here since 2021. When you go back to that beginning that you talked about, what was it that brought you to law enforcement? Was it it a person, a television program? You had some mentor along the way. Just curious to know what bug bit Jason Armstrong about wanting to be a police officer? I get this question a lot and I have a very unconventional answer. I'm one of the few people in law enforcement that can honestly say that I I got into it for the money. And what I mean by that, when I was in college at North Carolina Central University, I learned of a program that the federal government, the Department of Justice, had recently started. Um, This was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that program was called the Police Corps. And how that program was set up is if you agreed to be a police officer for four years, it was a four-year commitment, a four-year contract. Uh, the federal government would give you back up to $30,000 that you had already spent on college. And the reason that they started this program under uh, President Bush, W. Bush, was because they they saw, you know, the challenges that they were seeing in law enforcement, in particular with minority communities or communities that had high crime. And one of the things that they were trying to do more of was recruit more college graduates to get into the profession. Uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you didn't see a lot of, you know, people coming straight out of college and going into the profession. You know, a big part of the transition into law enforcement um, was recruiting and coming from the military. And so they were they were trying to just try some new things to get, you know, some new people into the profession. And I got accepted into that program, largely, you know, with the money that that I was going to be getting back that I had already spent on college. And so that was the biggest motivator for me to get into the profession of law enforcement. Um, I didn't expect to, to stay in municipal policing this entire time. You know, my original goal was to just do my four years and then take my four years of experience and transition and, and join the FBI. 
And so that was heavily influenced by TV shows and, and the things, you know, that were marketed to people, that that was the cool place to be. But once I got into the profession um, and working in, in municipal law enforcement, you know, I really found my knack in that space and, and I really saw that I was needed in that space. And, and that's really what fueled me to stay in local government as opposed to, to trying to transition to a federal agency. Well, I'll go back to your initial words and your response. I can honestly say in my 40 plus years of association in law enforcement, I have never heard one say I got into it for the money. So you had the right idea at the time and knew what you needed to do. And sometimes we just don't know when we take that first step where our careers will lead us to. So that kind of transitions into my next question. As a law enforcement leader who is also African-American, have you felt or, or ever felt any additional pressures either internally or externally? Absolutely. Both, both internally and, and externally. You know, internally, I'll start with, now I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that, you know, has been present for me, you know, throughout my career is, is one, you know, just the sense that I, I had to work harder and outwork, you know, all of the other individuals that I was up against for positions. Like I said earlier, you know, when I started with the Forest Park Police Department, the rank of sergeant was the highest position. Um, that any African-American had ever held in that organization. And this was in 2001 in Metro Atlanta. We boarded Atlanta. So, you know, we're talking Metro Atlanta in 2001. The sergeant was the highest rank. And so, you know, I, I made it a mission and a goal of mine to become the first, to become a lieutenant, to become a captain and, and climb the ranks. And I remember I achieved lieutenant position. And then um, after that, when I was up for captain, uh, I was having a conversation with a, a buddy of mine in the department uh, who was a white male, and we were talking about the pending captain process. And so this department has never had a black captain. And and this was a friend of mine. So was, this was not an enemy or, or anything like that. This was a friend of mine. And so there was, you know, he wasn't trying to be disrespectful in what he said, but his comment to me was, they have to promote you to captain because you're black and they've never had a black captain. And this was a friend telling me this. And really, you know, the takeaway that I have from that and just largely, you know, what my experience has been throughout my career is, you know, some of the things that I've achieved, you know, individuals have put an asterisk beside it as if, you know, I didn't have the experience and I didn't have the resume that I have. And my race was the reason that I achieved what I achieved as opposed to me being, you know, qualified, more than qualified and outshining the individuals that I was up against, you know, in the processes that I had to go through to achieve the positions that I achieved. And so those are just some of the things that you deal with in the profession and, and some of the things that you have to, to be mindful of that some people are going to look at you that way. And, and that has been consistent, you know, in my journey, especially as I've climbed the ranks to get, you know, higher positions and becoming a police chief in multiple agencies now. You know, sometimes you get met with that. Well, you know, of course, you know, Ferguson, you know, they had all of this unrest that unfolded after Mike Brown incident. And there was a white police chief in there at that time. So, of course, they're only going to hire a black police chief to come in after that happened. Here in Apex, coming in on the heels of a cultural assessment and being the first black chief in the history, the 150 year history of the, the town of Apex. You know, well, of course, they're going to bring a black police chief in here, you know, after having, uh, you know, racial bias issues go public from that department. And so, you know, it becomes more about that or that's the first thing that people will attach to. 
instead of looking at my resume and all of my accomplishments and stacking that up against anybody who will go after these positions. Externally, there are a lot of pressures also, especially when you become the first to, to do something and just what that represents for a lot of people in, in your communities and the expectations that they put on you, sometimes unfairly. So being a minority police chief, you know, some people look at that is that my only role and, and my only uh, objective is to make decisions that only impact or positively impact minorities or Black people where that's not how decisions are made. I'm the police chief for everybody in my community that I serve, regardless of what they look like. And so sometimes you take on additional challenges and additional pressures when you make a decision that people disagree with. And then it's like, oh, well, we thought you were going to make decisions like this because you're a minority chief or you're a Black chief. No, I have to make decisions that are in line with the Constitution. I have to make decisions that align with our policies and procedures and what we're trying to accomplish as an organization. So sometimes, you know, you deal with that and, and you're never going to make everybody happy. You're never going to be able to live up to everybody's expectations of what they think you can do. And you just have to be comfortable and, and confident in, in what you're doing and, and know that you're always trying to do the right thing and have a positive impact on people. Well, you touched on my next question a little bit, and it's about challenges. Obviously, there was a challenge going in to lead a law enforcement agency in Ferguson, Missouri, after what had happened there. And then, of course, most folks in North Carolina are familiar with some cultural issues that took place in Apex. So you leave, and I'll call it one hotbed and come into another one that's kind of warm. So my question is, with all of that preface, what are some of the challenges that you have faced in your career? And again, you touched on this just a little bit, but more specifically, do you believe that any of those were related to your race? So, you know, when I look at the the challenges that I faced and, and largely, you know, looking at it from, you know, sitting in the chief seat or, you know, high up in, in organizations and being in, in leadership, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the challenges that I faced, I would say, were, were race related. I would say some of those challenges have been enhanced because of my race. And so I, I give you an example, you know, being in Ferguson, Ferguson is known for, for protests and, and unrest. And, you know, that, that wasn't any different when I got there. I got to Ferguson right before the five year anniversary of Mike Brown's death. And so, you know, at that anniversary, there were protests that went on. And so when you have those protests and some of the, the people, some of the individuals that come out for that, some of the agitators, you know, sometimes they lock in and they look for the minority officers that are standing out there or the black officers that are standing out there. And those are the individuals that they verbally attack and verbally abuse for being out there and calling you an Uncle Tom and a traitor and you're a disgrace to your race. How could you wear that uniform? And so, you know, those are some of the attacks that you face, uh, verbal attacks, you know, because of your race at times to where people look at you as, as a traitor because of their experience or just their outlook and how they feel about um, policing. But by and large, you know, the, the challenges that I face, you know, being a police chief, the number one thing that contributes to your challenges are people. You know, you deal with a lot of people problems and the people problems that I deal with on a daily basis. Um, I wouldn't say that my race is contributing to that. That's just the responsibility of what comes with being a police chief and being a, a leader of an organization. And you're always going to have challenges to deal with. Rarely does anybody come to my office and say, chief, hey, you know, hope you have a good day and, and everything is going great. They always come to my office because there's a problem or there's something going on that, you know, they need my input and my guidance on. And so, you know, the challenges that we face and, and that I face on a regular, I, I wouldn't attach that to being race related. I want to go a little more broad spectrum on you. Uh, of course, we all remember back in 2020, the in-custody death of George Floyd. 
and obviously it fueled both racial and social justice movements throughout our country. Did you experience any of those protests in your jurisdiction? So, yes, unfortunately, you know, I dealt with way beyond protests. I dealt with rioting and, and unrest and violent attacks on law enforcement. So in 2020, when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, I was the police chief in Ferguson, Missouri. And Ferguson, Missouri is ground zero for the Black Lives Matter movement following the, the death of Mike Brown at the hands of uh, Darren Wilson, who was an officer with the Ferguson Police Department. And so, you know, immediately following George Floyd's uh, murder, we started having individuals come out to protest. And so the first few days were very peaceful. You know, every day I would take some time to go out and, and they were protesting across the street from the police department um, and just go out there and just, you know, walk amongst the people out there, you know, try to have some conversations with individuals if they were open to it. And just, you know, just have an open dialogue with individuals. Um, the Saturday following his death, there was a large protest scheduled to be at the police department. And so we knew that there were going to be a lot of people to come out for this one. Um, and so we started making plans and preparation for the potential for, for things to escalate from a peaceful protest to an unlawful assembly and potentially, you know, to rioting. And unfortunately, that's what happened. You know, the individuals that came out there for the first several hours of their protests, and, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out there. You know, my officers were out there. I was out there amongst the crowd and just, you know, once again, talking with people and, and trying to have conversations with them. But and by and large, the people that initially came out there during the daytime, while it was still light, there was no violence. There was a lot of anger and a lot of frustration, understandably so, for what we all witnessed on that video of, of Mr. Floyd being killed. But there were some individuals that came out that were intent on violence. And as nighttime ensued, there was a different element to the crowd. There were different people out in the crowd. And some individuals that came out there that night, they were intent on burning down the police department. And so unfortunately, we experienced a severe attack uh, on our officers and on our building. You know, it started with a commercial grade firework explosive that they threw to a group of officers that was standing in front of the police department. So that explosion dispersed my officers that were out there. And, and then people bum rushed the building with bats and crowbars or metal pipes and things. And they bust out all the windows of the police department real quick. Then they retreated. And, and then just with so many people, with hundreds and hundreds of people being out there, they use, you know, the protection of protesters who were not engaged in criminal activity uh, to launch their assault on not only the officers that were out there, but the building itself and, and started launching, you know, some of those more commercial grade uh, fireworks through the windows, trying to set the building on fire to burn it down. And so just to say that that that, that night was something that I had never experienced. And I pray to God that I never experience again. In 2018, the voters of Pitt County, North Carolina, helped make history when they elected the first African-American female sheriff in the state of North Carolina. Sheriff Paula Dance has been in law enforcement for over 30 years. Sheriff Dance, thank you for breaking ground that no doubt will inspire others to follow. You are indeed a law enforcement trailblazer as Pitt County's first African-American sheriff. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and thank you for having me. As I noted in the beginning of our segment, your law enforcement career started some 30 years ago, and if I recall correctly, it didn't exactly begin the way you anticipated. Tell us about your experience of getting into basic law enforcement training and your indoctrination of your first job. 
Yeah, so, and I often tell people, you'll hear people say that, you know, I always grew up wanting to be a law enforcement officer. Well, that that was not true for me because, you know, I didn't grow up thinking, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a law enforcement officer. It happened to be, it was more of a happenstance that got me into this arena before I realized what my niche was in life. It has been such a great honor to lead the way for other women in law enforcement to know that there is not a certain uh, position that you get to and then that's just it for you. I've broken that glass ceiling and I have that opening for other women to follow behind and to come through and to continue to break other ceilings. Just an absolute great story. At the end of his third term, Sheriff Elks decided to retire, and obviously you decided to run for sheriff. But there was an incident, actually a defacing of one of your campaign signs. Talk about that and feel free to include your feelings after you saw it. Yeah, so, you know, running um, for sheriff for me had several, I knew it would have several obstacles. One, um, being a female, and there had never been another female. And certainly there was those conversations about the ability of a woman to lead an agency. The second obstacle was the race, uh, my ethnicity, uh, what color I was, what I looked like. And this particular campaign, and, and, and it reared its ugly head at times through social media, through messages left on my campaign line that I often, you know, never even spoke about. And this particular incident was one that I could not be ignored. It was very blatant. And as a matter of fact, I was on my way to a uh, church to speak on a Sunday doing the campaign trail and happened to go through an area and looked over and saw one of my signs uh, that had been nailed to the stop sign and it had a Confederate flag placed over my face and some wording up there. I can't exactly remember what the wording was on it. And I was stunned. I was stunned to see that. I was a little bit in shock. I had to turn around and come back and I had to sit there for a minute to let it sink in exactly what I was seeing. And once it sank in, of course, I made the appropriate calls to have someone come from the sheriff's office to retrieve the sign uh, in hopes of looking uh, for evidence that would lead back to the perpetrator of that. Now, this wasn't just your typical, and, and all people who are running for office will have complaints about missing signs, had some of those too, or different little things. But this was very egregious in the sense of the symbolic nature of the uh, flag being placed over my face. That sent a message that was not in words, but rather in, you know, what that meant. And so certainly, um, you know, that information was turned over to an outside agency. Unfortunately, they were not able to retrieve any evidence to tie it back in. Since I've been sheriff, I have given some further information that I learned through another investigation of, of where this possibly came from. But yes, it reared its ugly head. And I think that was more shocking than some of the messages that were left on my campaign line. But at the end of the day, 
I had to remember what the goal was. Would I love to fix all of the uh, race relations that all the ills as it pertains to race relations? I absolutely would. But unfortunately, there's I don't think there's anyone that can do that at this point. And all we can do is continue to put do our little part to make those things better. And hopefully it trends across our world and our nation and everyone would come to recognize that each and every person has some reason for being here and some addition or something to offer to the world in our time. And so mine, I feel in what's going on in the climate that we're facing today, I just feel like I'm in the right place at the right time and with an ability to understand all around me because I wear two hats. I wear a hat when I'm in this uniform. I I support law enforcement. Obviously, I do every day. I put on a badge and a gun and come out to uh, help protect the people of this community and the people of the state of North Carolina. But there's a point of time that I take this uniform off and I see the other side of the coin in some respects as well. So I have to find that happy median medium and I have to recognize that I'm a part of both worlds and I've just got to make it work. It gives me an ability to to see both sides of that coin. I am a coin and there's two sides and I want to live my life and my profession in such a way that uh, is an example to everyone else. As our podcast highlighting Black History Month continues, it is now my pleasure to welcome Caswell County Sheriff Tony Durden. Like his counterpart in Pitt County, Sheriff Durden is the first African-American to hold the office of sheriff in Caswell County. Sheriff Durden, thank you so much for taking your time out to be on the podcast today and sharing some of your experiences with us. I thank you and I appreciate being asked to be on your podcast. Absolutely. I want to talk to you, first of all, about that early law enforcement career. What was it that brought you to law enforcement? What was it in Tony Durden's mind that said, I think that's a job I'd like to do? Well, I always had a lifelong dream of being in law enforcement. I always used to dream about being a Texas Ranger because I'm from Texas. And uh, that was my dream job. But, you know, it's just 100 Texas Rangers in the whole state of Texas. So, you know, that was one of those, you know, wistful thinking dreams. But I always wanted to be in law enforcement. And when I got out to Navy, me and my wife at the time, we decided that we wanted to move to North Carolina. This is our home state, and I needed a job. As a veteran, I just freshly out the Navy, I, I went to the unemployment office. They had uh, job openings in Durham, North Carolina, as uh, detention officers. And so I applied. I went through the process and I got the job. So we moved back to Caswell County, our home county, and uh, I, I went to work in Durham. You you have done a little bit of everything, but now as sheriff, that obviously makes you the official law enforcement leader of your agency, who is also African-American. As you look back, or maybe even now in, in current day, do you feel additional pressures no, sir, I don't feel additional pressures. There's pressures that come with the job, regardless of uh, race, creed, or color. But I think being African-American 
it gave me a perspective that I can see things differently that just African-Americans or people of color may see and have a better understanding of where they're coming from. So again, is and I know I'm doing a lot of asking you to look in the rearview mirror, but I'd like to ask you to kind of zero in on some of the challenges that you faced in your career. And, and I'll be a little bit more specific. Do you think or believe that any of those challenges were related to your race? I always tell folk that I'm past 50. And so I didn't grow up in segregated South. You know, I've always been inclusive. When I got into law enforcement, I'm of the mindset that I was afforded the opportunity to uh, do a job. And if I did the job as well as I possibly could, I would advance. Now, I don't know if I was passed over for some promotions or anything because of my race, but I know that I've been blessed that I have had an opportunity to uh, advance in my career And I've been blessed that I don't believe that I've been hindered in any way because of it. Outstanding and truly spoken from the heart. Thank you for that. There have been some rather ugly times in our country over the past couple of years, and specifically in 2020, the in-custody death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, fueled racial and social justice movements across our country. I want to ask you a couple of questions here. First, did you experience any protest in your jurisdiction? And if you did, how did you handle those? And if not, can you pinpoint why you believe there were none? We had a peaceful protest march through the town of Yanceyville. All of my deputies, we blocked off the road that the protest march could proceed down Main Street. We also marched alongside the people that were protesting just making sure, one, that everyone was safe. Also, making sure that they knew the people that were protesting and anyone else who was watching that we were standing for right. We believed that Mr. Floyd was killed unnecessarily and unlawfully. So we stood behind what we believed was right. Again, very true and very spoken from the heart. And, and I, again, thank you for that very honest and open response. Next question about leadership. I think no matter what business you are in, be it law enforcement, president or CEO or CFO of a large corporation, all leaders face some form of periodic criticism. Do you ever feel that your critics, provided you have them, are a little more harsh with you because of your race? You you asking me to psychoanalyze some of my critics. In today's world, people dislike you for a lot of reasons. You may be too tall, you may be too round, you may be too thin. If I have critics, the most of them, I don't think it's where it could be about race, but it usually is about politics. And politics, oh, it's nasty, meaning that you are this party or you are that party. And if you are this party, you're you're the devil, or you're that party, you're a saint. So uh, maybe we need to look at that. Some of that is causing some of the friction with people having more critics than they deserve. Sorry to get you deep into uh, psychoanalytics. I didn't mean to go there, but I I understand exactly what you're saying, and and you are quite right. We're going to kind of wind things down here and uh, get away from psychoanalytics and ask you to pull out your crystal ball and take a look into the future. 
From your perspective as an African-American law enforcement leader, what does the future of policing look like to you? Well, you know, we go in stages in policing. You know, we had community policing. We had, then it went to the uh, 21st century policing. You know, that's a, one of those situations that is an unknown, meaning that a lot of my friends who are sheriffs or who were sheriffs, they're getting out the business because it's one of these situations that you don't know what's going to happen. They believe or they feel that you don't have a win-win situation, meaning that you can't win. You're always up against it. And you're always getting criticized. You're always doing this and all doing that. But, you know, we have, we up to transparency. That's the key word for everyone. We want to be transparent. We want to make sure everyone knows what we're doing. And maybe that is the future, but the problem is being transparent sometimes when you let people see how the sausages are made, sometimes, you know, they don't want to see that. And sometimes we catch people at their worst in law enforcement uh, most of the time. But hopefully law enforcement can remain that we're protecting the most vulnerable. We're doing a service to the public. I wanted to stay the same, but it's going to have to change that we're going to have have to do things in different ways because one, we're unable to recruit our best and our brightest to come into law enforcement, meaning that we have some of the best and the brightest, but we're, we're losing a lot of them to different jobs. Some of this is because we can't pay them what they can get paid just sitting at home answering the phone or punching a button on a computer. And a lot of things we need to push forward with. I just wanted to say there's just that old saying that exists that the only thing constant is change. And this is not the same job that it was 30 years ago. And you're a witness to that. Well, that is true. That is not the same job because technology is different. Some of us dinosaurs, uh, you know, we just we can't even use a cell phone. So it's just things that we have to learn and it's a young person's game, and uh, we just got to make sure that we're out recruiting our best and our brightest and trying to make sure that we equip them with the materials they need to be successful. My thanks once again to Apex Police Chief Jason Armstrong and Sheriffs Paula Dance from Pitt County and Tony Durden from Caswell County. The North Carolina Justice Academy proudly recognizes these African-American leaders as we join in the celebration of Black History Month. Until our next episode of NCJA 1014, please stay safe. NCJA 1014.